last week we enjoyed an interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. Um, we've been in the book of Revelation, and um, it was very interesting because the Apostle John was given a scroll by a mighty angel, the Bible says, and he was told to eat that scroll. The practical application we walked away from, this is the 30-second synopsis from last message last Sunday, that is, you and I are to be those who digest God's word. Amen? Can I get an amen? Today, I've decided to extend the interlude. So, you say, Pastor, how can you do that? I thought we were supposed to go verse by verse. Okay, listen, we're going to extend the interlude just for today. Um, Because the events in Revelation are going to ramp up rather quickly. And there's going to be some really crazy imagery, some very uh, stark contrasts between God's kingdom and between the other kingdoms of the world. uh, Spiritual battle that ensues, physical battles that ensue. Uh, So because of that, I thought that it'd be really important um, to give you some practical help in developing your eschatological belief. (laughs) Ooh, everybody say, wow, school has started. Um, So here's the thing, though. If And we've talked about this as we've gone through Revelation. I think it's really important that you know what you believe and that you base it on something (laughs) you find in God's Word, not something that was handed to you through a popular book in the 80s, 90s, or today. Sounded like a radio plug. Um, Or... Uh, based on something that you were just taught by mom and dad. Um, again, we don't want you to throw away all those things and just kind of undo your faith. We just want you to find your footing. Does that make sense? So today, I'm going to tell you about the four main views that are within mainline Christianity. And you're probably going to find yourself with a foot in one of them and a foot in another one. Uh, because there, there's a bunch of hybrids in between. But I'm going to tell you at the close of the message what God's word actually says about three specific things that are in this. So the title of the message is The Interlude Continues. Okay? That's it. The Interlude, yeah, The Interlude Part 2. But uh, I want you to make sure that you understand it's okay for you to have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other as long as both feet are in the Bible. <laughs> Hello? Can I get an amen? Okay. Um, I want to remind you of this as well, that eschatology is important, and I'll remind you what that giant theological made-up word is. But it's important, it is not mandatory that we agree on everything. There are people in our church that believe that Jesus is going to rapture the church before a tribulation happens. There are people in our church that believe that it's going to happen about midway through. We're going to suffer a little bit. There are people in our church that believe that we're going to suffer through the entire, if there is a seven-year technical literal period of a tribulation, at the end of that, then Jesus is going to rapture the church. There may be some of you that don't even fully understand and grasp the idea of what a rapture really is or what it will look like. There are people that believe inside of Christianity in two comings of Christ or in three comings of Christ. And so we're going to try to just make sense of these different things. Let me remind you, eschatology is simple, 
because it's the study of last things. It's the study of last things. So it talks about basically the concepts of death, the intermediate period of whatever happened to the people before Jesus came. Did, were they with God, without God, those sorts of things. The afterlife talks about judgment, talks about something called the millennium, um, which we'll talk about a lot today. Talks about physical, real, literal places called heaven and hell. And it also, eschatology, incorporates Jesus' return. Now, there have been people who say that they are believers who have been leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. Don't let me get on a soapbox too long this morning. Who have written books in recent history within our lifetime that have said that there is no literal hell, that there is no punishment, a God who's gracious, he would never do that. Well, the Bible says different. And so we're going to talk about what we believe inside of those things. So if we can't agree on everything within the end times concept and what we call eschatology, we've got to at least agree on the next five things I'm going to share with you today. It doesn't matter if you walk out of here today and go visit a Baptist church, you should hear the same thing that I'm going to tell you. It doesn't matter if you go to a press, it doesn't matter what kind of church you go to. (laughs) If it's a Bible believing, truth speaking church, y'all saw me put my foot in my mouth. I got it out real quick. Um, you should hear these things. And that is this. First and foremost, you must, as a Christian, agree that Jesus will return to rule and reign. I stopped myself, okay, for those of you that didn't get the joke and you're still asleep or something, I stopped myself from saying Presbyterian. There's a bunch of divisions in the body of Christ today that have to do with cultural things. I'm just telling you, if you go to a Bible-believing church, they should preach this, okay? We've got to agree as believers that Jesus will return. Why is that? Look with me at John 14. John 14, Jesus actually says this. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Verse 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 Jesus speaking, the kingdom of this world has become, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ rather, and there's a verse in chapter 11, verse 15, which we haven't gotten to, but we'll get to next week. And there's this chorus of eruption and praise in the kingdom of, of heaven that says this, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. There's not going to be any challenges to Jesus' rulership. He is from eternity to eternity, everything in between. So we've got to agree that he will return. How he returns, there's a little bit of a mystery. There are different sides of how they interpret the, the scripture. Just understand, Jesus is coming back. Amen? And he will not stop. Amen? He will reign forever and ever. 
The second thing that we've got to agree on if we are believers in Jesus Christ and his word is that there will be a judgment of all humanity. Now, you might be here and you say, wait a second, pastor. I thought we just believed that about the sinners. (laughs) There's a little bit more to it than that. The Bible says that God is watching what we do. He knows that you serve in the church. He knows what you, he knows what the widow gave in the offering in the New Testament. He understands the details of your life. He knows the things that you do in service to his people in his kingdom. And so he's going to credit those things to you. But there's also going to be a judgment for those who are sinners. Look at what Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 and 28 say. And just as it is appointed for man or woman to die once, just talking about humanity, and after that comes judgment, verse 28, the writer of Hebrews says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The Apostle Paul says it like this in different places throughout his letters. And just to sum it up, he says, If you've come to faith in Christ Jesus, you were saved. If you're living today, you are being saved. And if you continue to live in eternity with him, you shall be saved. You are, you will be in the future. Amen? So there's a judgment, though, that is coming. It's not just a judgment of those who we think are the dirtiest, horrible sinners. It's a judgment for all. There's a separate category, but there's a judgment of all. Jesus is the judge. Go back to message number five in the series, I think. Uh, The third thing that you've got to understand is this. There is a real place of eternal reward. If this life... On this dirty earth is all you've got or you're going to come back as a cockroach or a gorilla or, a, you know, some other or your, you know, ancestor. Let me tell you, that would be hell. <laughs> okay. But if you understand the word of God in all of its promises tells us that there is a real place of eternal reward, that those rewards will be given out to those who believe in God and who serve him. According to Matthew 25, 46, it says this, and certain ones will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I'm uh, hesitant to talk about death and funerals. Uh, I know that I've been part of many of uh, the families in our church and grieving in those moments. I want to say this to you. If we believe in God and understand his love and salvation, then we don't grieve the same way that the world does. The Bible is clear about that. There is hope even in the darkest moment of your loss, if that person was a believer, because you will be reunited with them. My, uh, my daughters got a special um, time with their 
grandparents recently with my parents down in Florida, and um, we sent them down there, and we had a little vacation without them, <laughs> and uh, they had a vacation as well, but um, when, when they came back into the house at 9, 9.30 the other night when they arrived home, the reuniting that moment was filled with laughter and hugs and tight squeezes and exclamations. I love you. I missed you. That's just a week and a half away from mom and dad. I just got to tell you, when the king of all the earth has your family members waiting on you to be reunited with them, there's going to be joy in the house of the Lord. Amen? And I'm not talking about four walls. I'm talking about in the kingdom of God. So we have hope. Amen? There are eternal rewards. But there's also got to be agreement that if there's eternal reward, there's also a very real place, sadly, of eternal punishment. The verse that corresponds to this is Revelation chapter 21, verse 8. It says this. This is towards the end of the Bible and the end of the book of Revelation. It says, But as for the cowardly, those without faith or the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars... Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Because there's a real place of eternal punishment, you and I are supposed to be the ones with the life raft walking around offering hope to those who are headed the wrong direction. And it doesn't require you to stand on a street corner with a sign on it that says you're going to hell if you don't repent. It requires you to build relationship with people and to have conversations around a water cooler, a lunch table, a, a, a parking line a, a, to get your kids at school. It requires you to build relationship and share the love of Jesus and the hope that he offers to all, to whosoever will. Even to the boss I hate, even to the person who took my promotion that I should have gotten, even to the coworker I don't get along with, even to my weird uncle, even to my weird, you know, yes, to all of them, amen? There's a real place of eternal punishment. The next thing that we have to agree on is that there is a real spiritual enemy. He's gone by many names. He's worn many disguises. He has empowered, listen to me with your spiritual ears today. He has empowered kingdoms on this earth and leaders of this world. He is real. He is absolutely real. He's been around for a long time and he's worked through spiritual and physical entities. But one day... He'll be banished for good for all eternity. Look at what Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12 says. It says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, 
but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, just think about it like this. I I don't want you to get sidetracked by that last phrase. In verse 12, show that again. It says, of evil in the heavenly places. Just understand, take this for what it is. God's word is not saying that there is evil present in heaven. Okay, He's saying through the apostle to the church at Ephesus. He is saying there are spiritual forces at work in a spiritual realm. And I would add that you don't understand. And because we don't understand them, sometimes we accept their offers. Because we don't fully comprehend the schemes and the, as the, the uh, King James Version says, the wiles of the devil, we allow him in our home. We've allowed him to interject himself into all sorts of places in our life, in our relationships with other humans, in how we deal with them, but also through entertainment choices and a lot of other things. I'm telling you, there is a real spiritual enemy and we must be awake to that fact. So, those are the things we've got to agree on as we move forward in our eschatological view, okay? So, there are four main eschatological views in Christianity or Christendom. The distinctions really, a lot of them use the same exact passage to prove their point, So you might have been confused before, and you might have even been confused earlier when I said pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. They use the same verses, they interpret them differently. So the distinctions between these four different things are based on interpreting Scripture. You've got to be careful how you interpret Scripture. The three real aspects, the three major aspects, differences or distinctions between each of these four that I'll share today are the millennium, the enemy, and the relationship between Israel and the church. Pretty much if you went into any Bible-believing church, they'd say, yes, Jesus is coming back. But then if they went in a certain vein, they would say they're not really certain that it's a thousand-year literal reign. It might just be figurative. Or it might just be this, or it might be that. So there are key differences in these three categories between these four things. And yes, today is a teaching, but I want you to find out where your feet are. (laughs) I'm going to retitle this message. (laughs) Find your feet, okay? So number one, and don't be scared. There's big words. It's because theologians, besides studying scripture, I think they have fun just making up big words, okay? So... Have you ever heard of consubstantiation? Like, I mean, there's just strange stuff in theology. Anyway, number one thought about eschatology is categorized as the word amillennialism. The next slide will show you what they essentially believe. It literally means, significantly means, there is no literal thousand-year reign. It's figurative. They do not believe that the enemy is presently exerting any influence on the earth whatsoever as it regards the enemy. These are the three different categories I mentioned. So the millennium, the enemy, and then they believe that the church has become spiritual 
Israel. There are proponents of this, and some of these have basis in church fathership or fatherhood from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century. Here, you'll see the people who have espoused these beliefs and have promoted them in some way, form, or fashion, all categorized, would be Augustine, Martin Luther, John Calvin, C.S. Lewis, surprisingly, held to some of this, and R.C. Sproul, who is a well-known theologian, and I love some of the stuff that he has written, but other things, mm. So this is what an amillennialist believes, that there's not really a literal thousand-year reign, that the enemy is not presently exerting influence on earth. The reason why I say that is it's difficult to reconcile someone like C.S. Lewis, who wrote, if you're familiar with literature, the Screwtape Letters, because he very well uh, pointed out the work of the enemy on the earth in that. But the church has become spiritual Israel. In, in other words, it's kind of like replaced Israel. And so anything that you read about Israel in the Bible really means the church. That's kind of their, their thought, general thought. Okay? And again, these people that are listed on the screen may not hold to every single item, but they've been major proponents or known proponents of these. So regarding the reign of Christ, they believe that Revelation chapter 20, which we'll get to later in the message, they believe that it is figurative. To them, it's not a specific thousand-year cycle on an actual calendar of any sort. They instead, listen to me, believe that Christ began his reign at his resurrection and ascension. So he's been reigning since that moment. And he presently rules on the earth through his people here and now. So the kingdom of God is here and now. And Jesus is ruling and reigning on the earth because he's got his church, his people who love him, believe in him. And that's what they espouse. That's what they believe. They do believe that Jesus will return physically at any moment to usher in heaven on earth. Regarding the role of Satan, they believe his influence has been diminished because he's been bound by Christ after the crucifixion and resurrection. And Satan himself is not phys not. Let me strike that word from the record. I didn't mean to say physically. Satan is not currently exerting influence over the world. I have a hard time reconciling that just being a human. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Just being, just seeing. I hope you don't have the news cycle on 24 hours a day. But whenever you do check it, I hope that you're prayed up because... The world we're living in is dark. And no, not all of it can be blamed on spiritual darkness. There are some just evil, evil acts that are done in the world by humans. But I'm telling you, the father of evil himself is the one who has influenced them. So I'm already showing my hand as to what I believe, but we'll continue. Uh, for amillennials, there's no stark contrast between Israel and the church. Um, I mentioned that. The church is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and his offspring, which is Jesus. Abraham's offspring, eventual offspring is Jesus, would bless all nations. And so they don't really see those things as completely distinct. We'll go into a second thing, a second frame of thought for eschatology, which is post-millennialism. 
Now, early in American history, post-millennialism was in some sense um, the American version of eschatology. Um, it's a difficult system to really quantify because there are a, a ton of hybrids inside of it. So there are people with... How many of you have ever played Twister? Just raise your hand. Okay. They, it's like they're playing Twister and they've got a hand somewhere, a foot somewhere, and a foot somewhere else. They're, it's a hybrid sort of thing. So it's kind of hard, but I'm going to try to highlight just broad points of agreement. Regarding the reign of Christ, the thousand-year reign may just be a long period of time. So they don't say it's figurative. They're not sure it's literally a thousand years. It might just be an extended long period of time. Some believe within this that the enemy is currently bound and some believe he's currently active and he'll future be bound. Okay? They hold to other points inside of the system. And they, just like the amillennialism, they believe that the church has become spiritual Israel. One of the proponents, the most popular that might come to mind, as you think, would be Jonathan Edwards. He's um, an American name in Christendom uh, for years and years because of what God used him to do in really saving many, many people. If you think of the word Billy Graham, you should think of names like Jonathan Edwards. He was an evangelist, a pastor, a preacher, he, a great leader, um, but there are different thoughts about eschatology, and he's one of these proponents. Um, for them... Regarding the role of Satan, there's no definitive position on the role of Satan within their thought. Some argue, like I said, that Jesus bound him when Jesus rose from the dead, that that's done. And then there are some that say, well, he's still active and he'll be bound in the future. So um, the next one, listen, we've already got covered two. Can I get an amen? <laughs> okay, this is a hard... You are auditing a college theology course this morning. Stay awake. We got two more, two and a half more. Okay. This next one is called post-millennialism. Uh, sorry, pre-millennialism. It is presently the most common view of eschatology that's held by American evangelicals. But listen to me. We are not like the other people around the world. This is popular here, but it may not be popular other places, and it's divided into two different distinct camps. One is historic, which we'll go over the details of, and the other is called dispensational. Historic just means that they've been believing this for a lot. It's like the traditional uh, hold. And then dispensation, a dispensation is an era of time. So the way they view history is that it's been broken into dispensations. We're in a certain one right now. We're about to be in a different one. And this is, this, it helps them frame their theology. So regarding historic premillennialism, the reign of Christ, they do, re, they do believe that Jesus is going to physically, visibly return and that he is going to literally reign for a thousand years. They believe that the enemy is currently at work in the world, influencing the affairs of the world and those who are leading the nations of the world. At the return of Christ, Satan will be bound for the duration of the millennium. He'll be bound and 
this is a future moment. So he's still active right now, but that's a future moment. Historic premillennialism also proposes that the church is the spiritual fulfillment of Israel in a manner that's similar to the other two that we've already discussed. But I would say this, a historic premillennialist, please don't go... Don't go to work on Monday morning and be like, I found out what I believe about the end of the world. I'm a historic premillennialist. This is not how this is going to happen, okay? I just want, I just want you to understand because here's the thing. When you have conversation with people who you know to be believers, they might believe differently than you. And so you want to understand what the different things are in the belief system and not call them out and say, wow, you're a sinner and going to hell. Uh, no, they probably love Jesus too. They just read the Bible and interpret it a little differently than we do. They have a more rigid, literal interpretation of Scripture. It's not a bad thing. It's just their thing, okay? So proponents of this would be a church father named Irenaeus. And you probably don't know this name, but Wayne Grudem, he's written many, many theological books and commentaries um, and has some amazing stuff out there, but it is definitely more rigidly literal than the other beliefs that we've talked about. Now, regarding dispensationalists, those who are dispensational um, premillennialism, this is a big slide, okay? So take, take your time and write these notes. The thousand-year reign of Christ will start after a literal seven-year tribulation. They believe in a what I call and what theologians and scholars do call a secret rapture. What we mean to say is um, that one portion, now you know I'm not supportive of prophecy profiteering like the Left Behind series of books or something. But just understand when like the pilot gets sucked out of the plane, that's a secret thing that happens and all of a sudden chaos ensues in the world. This is it. Okay, dispensational premillennialists, they believe in a secret rapture. Nobody knows about it, and then all of a sudden the entire world knows all at once because the people of God have been taken. They believe that the enemy is currently at work in the world and that he'll be bound during the millennial reign, then released and finally punished and banished for eternity. Okay, so think about it like this. The enemy is ruining the world along with our own choices of sin. Okay, this is their thought process. He is currently influencing the world. Jesus will come to reign. When Jesus is reigning, he'll be thrown to the side, locked away kind of thing for a time, but then he actually will be released and he'll be able to cause some damage and then he will be thrown and banished in eternity into what we know in Revelation as the lake of fire. I hope you're following me so far. We're almost there. Israel and the church are distinct entities. I think you've heard me say things uh, that are very closely aligned with this point. That God made promises to Israel and he chose a people, that people out of all the peoples in the world to call his own. But listen to me. Just because you have blood in you with DNA from a Jewish person does not guarantee you will be in heaven. We have to understand the work of Jesus Christ on the cross 
meant that there was a decision point that was all of a sudden put in front of all humanity, much like the decision point that was in the Garden of Eden. There's this moment that now we know that Jesus has come and we know what God has done through him. We must accept or reject. So God still has a plan. He's fulfilling. We believe that those promises that he made to Israel according to this frame, framework, um, that God will fulfill some of those things in the way that we understand them, but some of them aren't able to be fulfilled any longer. So there's some challenges within this thought process or theological breakdown. Israel is real. God has not stopped choosing those people, but he's added, come on, to those people. If you read anything Paul ever wrote, I'm not talking about our apostle Paul, but the actual one historically in the Bible. If you read anything written by him, you would know this, that God has caused I love this phrase, the spirit of adoption to become yours. You have become a child of God. If you have accepted him, you have become a child of God. And now the God of Israel is the God of you. Amen. So Israel and the church are two distinct entities. Proponents of this would be, I don't know if you ever had one of these, a Ryrie study Bible. I'm thinking somebody did here. Uh, I know I've seen one before. My parents had one too. Hal Lindsey is a proponent. Um, he would be somebody. And John MacArthur, a popular uh, speaker who's been around for years. Okay, so we're almost done auditing this class. Uh, can I get an amen? Remember this. The distinctions between these things all have to do with interpretation. They all have to do with interpretation. So um, we're going to talk now about what I think you should believe. Because <laughs> I told you what everybody else believes. But I, I didn't even download the Assemblies of God doctrinal statement about the end times in order to share that with you. What I did is I actually just looked in the Bible and I decided I would share with you God's word about what it says about these things. Amen? And you can study it, dive deep, go for it. I want you to remember, though, remember this. There are various literary devices used in the word of God and different genres within the Bible. You've heard me talk about recently about how my wife loves to read and she loves to read fiction. I'm more of a nonfiction person. Both of those things can be okay. Okay. She can love what she loves and I can love what I love. Inside of the Bible, there is whole books of law. You may not understand it. You can come again in five years when we repeat the Deuteronomy or Leviticus series and we'll talk about those laws. <laughs> but there are whole books of poetry in the word of God. There's different genres, including historical, including narrative, where they're telling the story of what happened during a certain timeline. There are books in your Bible that don't include a reference to God. A book. So... There are many, listen to me, there are many literal things in God's word, but you must understand there are some figurative things that are in God's word meant to point us somewhere. So 
Here's what the Bible says about the thousand year reign of Christ. Are you ready? We're going to read three chapters of the Bible. Revelation chapter 20. See, I was just seeing if you're awake this morning. Revelation chapter 20. I don't, I, I, I hate to skip ahead, you know, but I'm going to just go ahead and do it because we're supposed to be in like verse, in chapter 11, but we're going to chapter 20. Read with me 20 verse 1. John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, or as the King James Version said, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him, listen, for a thousand years. Verse 3 And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, that verse is puzzling. Don't ask me to tell you any more about that right now because I haven't gone that far. But I just, I need you to understand what John is clearly seeing is there's only one who holds the key to that place and a chain big enough to wrap that dragon, that serpent of old up, and to put him away for that thousand years. But then he will be released for a short time. Verse 4 says this, Then I saw thrones. This will be an interesting one for you to dive deeper into. Thrones, plural, seated on them, were those, plural, to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. You say, Pastor, how many people could that be? Thousands upon thousands. So those who had been beheaded for the sake of the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not Sorry, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is incredible, y'all. Verse 5 says this. It says, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and reign with him for a thousand years. Verse 7 says this, When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. Now, we'll talk about this when we get there. There are two strange names here. Feel free to start looking up reference to them in your scriptures later or Google and then keep looking in in God's word about Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. Verse 9 says this, And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. I was just trying to wake you up. (laughs) 
Fire came down from heaven and consumed the enemy. Listen, this is good. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were with his buddies, okay? And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. There's a God who rewards and a God who punishes. He is one and the same. He is the God I serve. Here's the, there are so many things the word of God says about the enemy, but one I will point out to you today. I just had to cherry pick something. First Peter chapter five, verse eight says this. Be sober minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. This Bible verse was not just written in that letter First Peter, for those people in those days. There's no expiration. It, it doesn't say, and after the year 2000, the devil will no longer be the roaring lion. No, he is prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He's trying to end marriages. He's trying to ruin families. He's trying to undo He's trying to undo the systems and institutions that God has put in place like marriage and even the church. He's still at work. So we're reminded to be sober-minded and vigilant or watchful. Here's what scripture says about Israel and the church. So I told you what it says about the millennium. I told you one verse about what it says about the, the enemy that we call Satan. Go with me to Romans chapter 9 or write this down because we can't read the entirety of it. But Romans chapter 9 through chapter 11, Paul communicates to those who he writes to. I'm going to give you pastor's paraphrase because I've studied this passage of scripture through and through to try to get very good clarity. So I'm going to just give you this reference because we can't read three chapters of the Bible today. I'm going to give you that reference to go home and read, but I'm going to tell you this about Israel and the church. You attain righteousness in or with God by faith in God, not because of your DNA, not because of your heritage, not because of any of those things, but because you believe in him. The Apostle Paul goes on to really tell in chapters 9 through 11 that believing loyalty is what follows your faith. So anybody can say, I believe in God. Do you serve him? That's Paul's point. God is true to his word. And he says there, he quotes in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he quotes and says, this is why God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I choose to have mercy on. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Amen? Amen? God is true to his word. He did choose a people all to himself among all the peoples of the world. In order to demonstrate his love, his kindness, his grace, his patience, his long-suffering, his mercy, all of those things. They royally messed up, just like you and I have royally messed up. But you can't get to heaven. I almost said on roller skates. 
just to see if you're awake. My daughter, my youngest, just got a, a pair of Heelys. You guys know what those are? The little skate shoes with the wheels in them? Anyway, she loves them. My kids have loved them. Um, anyway, I just thought of like the old VBS in Sunday school. Oh, you can't get to heaven. You can't. Well, that doesn't sound very hopeful. <laughs> you, if you know, you know. I can't sing the whole song. But essentially, it's saying you can't take stuff with you, okay? They didn't say, oh, you can't get to heaven. All right, I'm going to get back to my page of notes here. (sighs) You can't, listen, you can't make it to heaven by default. You can't make it to heaven because of your last name. You can't make it to heaven because your mother or father served God. You can't make it to heaven because you did something nice for someone. The only way, Romans 9 through 11... Paul makes it very clear because there's a discussion going on about people trying to realize or understand whether they should accept Jewish people into the body of Christ who now say they believe in the Messiah. There's this challenge in the New Testament in the building of the church. And so Paul is trying to set that right and saying, listen, your bloodline doesn't matter. Your economy doesn't matter. Your social status doesn't matter. Your height, your weight, your age. None of those things are barriers. If you believe and follow him, you will be his. This is good news. Listen, that's the greatest news of all time. And it doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what sin you've committed in the past. It doesn't matter any of those things that would matter in human judgment. None of those things matter when it comes to the judgment of God because he says, I'll choose to have mercy on who I choose to have mercy on. And if you come to me, I will show you mercy. Isn't that good? So we're, we're welcoming of people in our church that believe the Bible. <laughs> let, me see, let me put it like that. How we interpret the Bible might be different. You might see it differently than the neighbor who's sitting next to you. You might disagree with your Baptist friend down the street. You may have friends in other churches that say that they believe a certain thing. Here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make sure that you don't have a, a, high, a high opinion of yourself, thinking that your theology is the best and only, that your theology is the highest, greatest, most perfected. Okay, I don't want you to have that view. And I also, if you do have that view, it's very easy to be demeaning towards people that find themselves in other camps. And then what you do is you actually play into the hand of the devil into the hand of the enemy and help the division that is already present in the body of Christ. And so I just want you to find your feet. I want you to find out what you truly believe. I want you to be assertive and confident about what you know is coming in the future because you know the one who is coming in the future. I feel the Holy Spirit on that today. Would you stand with me? God has expanded his family. I love the fact that he's made it available for anyone to come to him. Any who want to can come to him. So I want to encourage you today. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads? I'm going to close quickly. I want you to get, I want you to have the opportunity today to give your life to the Lord, but also then to say, I will follow Jesus. If you're here today and you're away from the Lord, 
and you say, yes, pastor, that's me. I want to declare my faith in him and follow him. Would you lift your hand high and proud today? Don't be ashamed of it. It's the best decision you could ever make in your life. If there's anyone here, I want to make sure you have that opportunity. If you're not in that position today and you're a believer, you're a believer in Jesus Christ in this house, can I hear an amen really loudly? Amen. There are people in this place that have issues and needs in their homes, in their life, in their family, and you might need prayer. So I'm going to ask the prayer team that's here, that's present, the Varners, if you would step out. Myself, I'll be on this side of the room, but the Varnos, they'll be over there. Um, we want to give you an opportunity to pray. Ms. Peden, she's stepping out as well. I want to give you the opportunity to be prayed for today. Church is a great place. It's a great place to see friends that you haven't seen all week and to talk about your faith and build your faith. But it's also a wonderful place to receive prayer. Amen? So if you've got a need for anything, they're going to sing this song. I think it's called, Oh, Come to the Altar, or Come to the Altar. And I just think that it would be wonderful if every one of us were vulnerable in this moment and just said, yes, that's me. I'm in need of prayer and came to receive prayer. You can come for prayer for anything. If it's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, relational, whatever it is, I believe there's an answer that God wants to give today to his kids. Amen. So let's do that. Oh, come to the altar. The Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was born with the prayer. 